Welcome to the podcast, People More Interesting Than Me. I'm your host, Michael Stromsky, where every week I host a new guest with unique professions, personal adversity, or even maybe a strong opinion or two. And if you haven't hit the five stars review on Apple Podcasts, please hit it now before you forget. Running a podcast is a surprising amount of work, and more reviews converts into a wider range of future guests. Today, I have guest Bobby Gibb. Bobby stands as a trailblazing figure in sports history. Her indomitable spirit etching an enduring mark on the world of marathon running. In 1966, she shattered conventional and defied entrenched norms, becoming the inaugural woman to conquer the grueling course of the Boston Marathon. Through sheer determination and unwavering belief in her capabilities, Bobby not only challenged gender barriers, but also paved the way for countless female athletes to follow in her footsteps. Through sheer determination and an unwavering belief in her capabilities, Gibb not only challenged gender barriers, but also paved the way for countless female athletes to follow in her footsteps. Her courageous feat remains a testament to the power of individual will and serves as an inspiration to generations of aspiring women athletes worldwide. We talk about her books, which are available on Amazon, Wind in the Fire, and her memoir on how she became the first woman to run the Boston Marathon. She also talks about her work as a sculptor, making things the size of small trophies to life-size visions of athletes. This is the remarkable story of Bobby Gibb, a pioneer whose strides transcended mere pavement, leaving an indelible imprint on the marathon's hallowed grounds. Enjoy. I'm very excited because I always like the ones that I can do re- research on. Yeah. And I just pulled up like like amazing stuff on it. And I, I just wanted yeah. like, like the perspective because there's so many moments like reading through your like not just the first race but the second race and the third race like your perspective obviously changed throughout the three years of running the marathon um but let's let how about we just get started on you i saw something in i think it was in 1964 you saw your first marathon and that kind of spurred your spark what was what was that like when you first saw i guess your experience of that well, I, I got to back up a little further. Okay. I always loved to run. Like as a kid, for some reason, I loved to run. Even as a toddler, I, I walked and then I ran. And my dad would take me to the local park and I'd run and run and run. It's just in the world whirling by. And I mean, I just felt so alive. And uh, this incredible energy and the beauty of it all. And uh, so I was running in the woods with the neighborhood dogs um, in my teens all the way up in my early 20s. And of course, this was highly uh, unusual. In fact, uh, for a grown woman to be running, especially in public, was thought to be improper. So uh, it was a very unusual thing for uh, for me to be running in the woods with the neighborhood dogs. But I loved it. I felt so free and, and I felt more like myself running in the woods. And my mother kept saying, how are you going to find a husband if you're running in the woods with the dogs? And how are you going to support yourself without a husband? You you should take typing deer to have something to fall back on and all this stuff. Because uh, she grew up in a t- and I too, in the 50s and 60s, uh, when um, most of the professions were closed to women. And it really was impossible to uh, to survive economically without a husband to support you. And so she wanted me, it was sort of like pride and prejudice or sense and sensibility. The whole name of the game was to get a husband. And if he had money, so much the better. And you know, so I just didn't want to pay, play that game. And I said, if I marry, I'll marry my best friend. And I'd slam out of the house and I'd run with the dogs in the woods. And it was one time, it was the one time in the day where I felt free and energized and and of course i love nature and to me nature is so beautiful it's just miraculous and so being up there in the woods it was peaceful it was a peaceful time and so when i saw the marathon i'd never heard of other people running and and i saw like 
I don't know, it must it could be a couple hundred guys, they were guys, a couple hundred guys running by. And I thought, wow, this is amazing. This is like an ancient tribe of 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 people running across the central plains of Africa. I mean, it's just it was it, it was just amazing to me to see all these people running. And I, I found it deeply moving. And it was like harking back to some primitive thing of what it what it is to be human on this earth and to put one foot after the other and run from one point to another. So and so I felt they these people knew how I felt that sense of, you know, strength and endurance and integrity it takes to run. It was like it was like life. You start in Hopkinton and you're young and you're full of energy and then you run your race and at the end you're tired and, and you, yeah, and then the race ends and it goes away and until the next year. And so I, I, I just wanted to be part of it because I thought these are my people. This is my tribe. I want to be part of this thing. And I didn't know anything about women not being allowed or I didn't even, I'd never even heard of the Boston Athletic Association or the AAU, the Amateur Athletic Union. I didn't know anything about the structure of the sport. I just knew I loved to run. And here were other people who loved to run, and I wanted to run with them. And that was about as far as I got. And, and I just set off training. And when I look back at my young self, I think that is amazing that I followed what I really loved from the inside, that I had this sort of inner directive to, to run this race, even though it was way outside the social norm and uh, thought improper for a woman and I but I followed it and I trained for two years and uh, then I uh, I wrote for my application and they told me women are not physiologically able to run marathons and at that time I was running 40 miles at a stretch and I said well all the more reason to run <laughs> So, yeah, that was. Yeah, let's talk about more of the day of because I I love the specific details that you've talked about it because uh, I think there was one moment I even tried to look up on Google Maps what the area looked like. Obviously, it could be completely different, but it was talking about you hiding behind a bush. Oh yeah, at the start of the race, and you were wearing uh, you're wearing a sweatshirt, right? And just so nobody would obviously see, like your long hair. Just be- no, I was. Uh, I wore a tank top bathing suit, and then over that I had a blue hooded sweatshirt and my brother's Bermuda shorts. So I had just come. I'm doing this all out of sequence, but I had just come on a three thousand mile bus trip from California. Yeah, I saw that. That's bathing- crazy. And you had chili, and I was like, yeah, she I- had chili right before a marathon. That's yeah. crazy. I, I ran. <laughs> I ate bus bus station chili in a bag of apples. Oh, that, bus station. That was chili. my. Three days. That's all I had to eat was bus station chili and Didn't apple. Did you have uh, like cookies or something from your mom or something? I, I uh, saw. Well, when, when I got home, I can back up to that. So, so I had trained for all this time, written for my application, been refused, and there's no women's division race. There's no. If this is a men's division race, the women are, of course, not qualified. Yeah, I saw the greatest was like women had was like maybe a mile and a half or something mile like that. Yeah, all you're allowed to run. And so there's the tragedy of prejudice. If if you're not allowed to do something, how do you know you can do it? You know, I mean, it's impossible. And if you're not allowed to do it, how can you prove that you can do it? So I, I was up against this catch-22, this double bind. I was not allowed to do the thing that I had to do to prove that I could do it. <laughs> so and and uh, so that's that's prejudice, and and, uh, and I was up against it, and and uh, so I knew. I, I thought I didn't know what I was getting in for, but I knew that if the officials saw me, they they try to stop me. I thought I might be arrested. That I knew I was doing something against the law. I thought it was against the law for a woman to run. I didn't know anything what I was getting into but um so I uh <laughs> so I uh, I wear my brother's Bermuda shorts as I get home and I call from the bus station and uh my parents thought I was in California I had recently been married and my husband and I were living in California and I came down and so well where are you um Boston well, well what are you doing in Boston oh I came <laughs> to run the Boston Marathon dead silence it's like you know it's like 
I could hear them whispering, you know, I, I think she's delusional. You know, my, <laughs> father, my father. And the other thing is like phone calls were like more intentional <laughs> these days. Like a phone call was a phone call. And it's like, she's calling for pasta. It was okay. an old pay phone, you know, one of those dial pay phones, like operator. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Someone's calling collect. Yeah. yeah. yeah right. Right. <laughs> oh. And so they were worried about me. You know, they didn't know what. And my dad said, I, I know, I, I, I worried she could, you know, she could injure herself or maybe even die doing such a stunt. And it, uh, yeah, so, and so they came and picked me up and took me home, you know. And then my mother made this incredible roast beef dinner and, uh, and pie and cheese and all this. So I ate this huge dinner because I, you know, just. Barber loading. I hadn't eaten much, but uh, all protein, you know, no, I had no idea of uh, carbo loading. I did everything wrong, basically. <laughs> and I had a pair of new boys running shoes because I had trained in nurses shoes and uh, and they were comfortable, big leather clodhopper things. But they were great because they didn't slip. And they, wow. they, it was they very sound hard. like blisters, like. I feel yeah. like leather would give me, yeah. It was the, they were soft. They were nice. Uh, I I I ran forty miles in those, and no problem. Uh, and they, but it was hard to find women's shoes in those days that weren't flimsy with pointed toes. You know, mm -hmm. you, you know they didn't they didn't make they didn't make uh, running shoes for women. Or and, and so so this nurse's shoes is what I was training, and then I met a guy in San Diego where I was living and he was part of the local track scene. And, you know, he took one look at my feet and said, you, you can't run a marathon in those. You've got to get something lighter. They said, they're too heavy. So, and, and he said, get boys running shoes. I had never thought of that. So I got boys running shoes, but they were new and I didn't know you're supposed to break them in. And they gave me horrible blisters. So I had horrible blisters that first race. What kind yeah. were they? Do you remember? I don't want to say because I don't want to ruin their reputation. Because <laughs> <Okay. laughs> I just got done with that uh, uh, the shoe dog. And the funny yeah. thing about your race is I saw, and it kind of baffled me that like the the three people or the four people who got first were all Japanese. Yeah. Like, not from the U.S. And I was thinking that they could have been tigers, you know, like the yeah. uh, the shoes from. I guess before Nike became Nike or U.S. Yeah. Nike. Sorry, keep going though. I, I was, was just curious Nike. about that. Before, yeah, and it was the Japanese that cleaned up that year. Yeah, yeah, and so anyway, so but I, I, uh, I finally convinced my mom to drive me to the start, and she had spent her entire adult life trying to get me to conform. And this was probably like the the one of like those moments where like she's like, oh, I failed her. <laughs> yes, yes, this is, this is it. And so, so she, uh, and she was really unhappy. Like all the women in the in the suburb where we grew up, they uh, they were they felt trapped and trapped, and they were trapped. They had no opportunities and no economic independence. They couldn't follow their dreams. They couldn't develop their talents. They had they were confined to this little box doing housework. And my mother was an intelligent, beautiful woman. And uh, she had once wanted to be a, um, a journalist and travel the world and write. And instead, she was trying. She loved her husband and her kids, of course. But uh, she was, uh, like all the women in, in, in those days, uh, taking tranquilizers and drinking a little wine to get to, you know, to, to, to dull the pain of, of, uh, of really of having lost her freedom. And I and I said, Mom, I'm not going to live like this. I, I can't. This is what being a woman is. I'm not going to do it. I'm going to go up to the wilds of Canada and live with my dogs and horses. I'm not going to. I can't do this. I can't play this role. I don't want to do it. And so she spent her whole adult life pretty much trying to get me to conform. And uh, I wouldn't. And so there I was about to run the marathon. And and. <laughs> And here we were, we'd been at odds for all those years. And uh, I said, Mom, you got to drive me to the start. This is important. This is going to help to set women free. And that, and that sort of rang a little bell with her. And I could see she was kind of moved. I said, um, you know, it, it, this, is, this, this country, it, it's democracy. It stands for civil rights. It means human rights. It means, uh, and that includes women. Mom, you got to drive me. 
this is going to change the way people think about women. I knew that. And so I convinced her to drive me to the start. So we, and we started talking on the way out. And it's the first time we had sort of talked honestly uh, about how we felt, you know, and I, and I, and I said, mom, you know, uh, you know, I said, so nice to have you on my side, finally. And she said, it, it's something I should have done a long time ago, <laughs> you know. And, uh, I, and then I said, well, I've always loved the real you, Mom, underneath that haze of alcohol and tranquilizers and so forth. And, um, um, and then she said, well, I've, I've always admired your spirit and a little bit envied your spirit and your independence and so forth. And But I thought I was doing the right thing to break your spirit and make you conform for your own good. And then she said, thank God I failed. <laughs> you know? and, uh, and I, and it was, it's like suddenly after all those years of fighting, we were, you know, we were like best friends and we hugged each other for the first time when we got stepped out of the car and in the outskirts of hockey and we hugged each other and, and, uh, and she wished me well, and and then I, I took off running around Huffington trying to figure out how I'm going to get into this race without being arrested. Man, that is a heavy. That is that like, like your biggest conversation with your mom you've ever had? Because that sounds huge. <laughs> well, that That's like movie ready. That was the that was the beginning because after I ran the race, and then it was front page headlines. Wait, I got. The headlines still here. She cut this out of the paper and saved it. It's like, and I xeroxed it. You know, hub bride, first gal to run marathon. That's me and my brother's Bermuda shorts, and running the marathon. And uh, this kind of went out around the world. We had friends in Malaysia that wrote and said, "Well, we read about your daughter in the local paper." You know, because of course the Japanese had won that year, so it was all over Asia. And of course, it was all over Europe, and uh, so uh, that was that really changed the way people thought about women. And my mother ended up going back to graduate school and getting her master's in sociology. It's like wow, this was like the beginning of women kind of coming out of the woodwork and starting to develop their potentials. And so that was the beginning of our sort of new relationship. And in those days, the women's movement was, we had conscious raising sessions. I had one in my house and three or four women, maybe half a dozen women, we get together and we talk about how we really felt and what it was really like. Well, they weren't happy. They were miserable. Now it's now they're saying, I was really enraged the whole time, you know, and, and you're really talking and say, this is the way I felt. This is what's really going on in my family. And it was amazing because for, for at the beginning of this, people were honest. And I think that actually helped men, too, to become more honest about their feelings. So people for that time were, I think, more open, more honest with each other about how they really felt and what was really going on. And this whole idea that if you're a man, you have to fit into this stereotype and you're not supposed to have feelings and you're supposed to be strong and you know, you, you don't have much to do with your children and all this. And if you're a woman, you're supposed to be weak and, and emotional and not able to think rationally and, and all this. And, and it was ridiculous because each individual is so absolutely unique. You know, like if, if you're a woman and you love trucks and you love to drive trucks, are you any less a woman? No. If you're a man and you like to knit doilies, are you any less of a man? No, you just happen to be a man who likes to knit doilies. He gets enjoyment out of it. I mean, and so, and so here we were spending all this time fitting ourselves and each other into these stereotypes and not being honest. And then suddenly people were honest with each other and they were doing what they what they really loved and in breaking out of these stereotypes. It was it was wonderful. And I think. I think that trend has continued. Maybe it's a little attenuated now, but it's, 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 you know, I see men carrying their babies and I see women, you know, uh, I mean, I went to law school. I became a lawyer. I was the only woman lawyer in the lawyer's room, you know, after at the court, you know, and I'd be surrounded by men, but 
but it was good. It was, you know, some these men were my friends. And so it was kind of at the very beginning of this, this idea that you can be an individual, which I think is fundamental to democracy. And I think, you know, human rights and civil rights is something that everybody in the world is entitled to. And and I've always felt that and I've I've done whatever I can to further that idea uh, where whenever I can. And so so the this talk with my mother was the beginning of a whole new relationship and not only with her but but in general. Yeah. I think in society, men being in the delivery room and women being in the boardroom and you know, this it is I think it's healthy, a healthy for people to be able to follow their dreams and to be able to manifest their real talents. And so I think society's better off for this, which is great. And I've always thought, I mean, ordinary people are extraordinary, whether given credit or not. I've always said that. In fact, I wrote that in one of my books. Ordinary people are extraordinary. I mean, each individual is so unique and so valuable. And I do think each one of us came here to planet Earth to give something, to to make the world better in some way. And millions of people are, I mean, I think people are basically good all over the world and millions of people are working and you know, you know, maybe they're not in the news and you don't know their names and so forth, but they're, they're the people who are holding the world together. They, and they're working, uh, doing good things for each other. And I, I love that. Yeah, definitely. And so after you finished your, your first race, um, I guess, did that kind of spur you? I mean, what was it like between your first race and your second race? Because I know on your second race, you actually registered under a, uh, like a, not a pseudonym, but a, a what, 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 I have it somewhere. What, what did you sign up as? I think you're, I think there's two stories here that have been confused over the years. And, uh, and they've been partly deliberately uh, twisted and partly is just the press has picked up the wrong story and got people get it mixed up in their heads. And um, so in 1966, I ran without a number, of course, because there was no women's division race. Yeah. And you can't legitimately get a number in a men's division race if you're a woman because you're not qualified. Yeah. But moreover, I found out later that if there's an unqualified runner in the race, it jeopardizes the accreditation of that race. They could lose their accreditation and then all the running times of the men would be negated. Mm -hmm. So it was, it, it was very important to make that distinction, men's division, women's division, but there wasn't any women's division. And so all of the women running, there wasn't any women's division race until 1972. So all of us women running before that were in what was, was now called the Women's Pioneer Division, Boston mm -hmm. Marathon. And so the first year I ran, I was the only woman, and I finished ahead of about two-thirds of the pack. I, I saw your time. It was great. It was like, what, uh, three hours, like 20 minutes, something yeah, like that. Yeah, but it was, but here's the horrible irony. Uh, for most of the race, I was on a sub-three-hour race. I was just singing along. I was in great condition. Remember, I was running 40 miles at a stretch. And the I, other thing is your mom just just basically boosted your spirit. Yeah. Like, I can't even yeah. imagine what like, that was oh like. Oh, my God. Except my for mother. all that protein, right? Yeah. So, and of course, the roast beef didn't help sitting in my yeah. stomach with a cannonball. And, and then I uh, the other mistake I made was I didn't know you're supposed to drink water. <laughs> so I had no water the whole way. So I was fairly dehydrated. But... On the other hand, I didn't drink water on my training runs either, so uh, I was my body was used used to that. And I would imagine it was pretty cold, right? No, it was hot that day. It, it was, was okay. It was a hot day. It was hot. Sun was beating. That. That's why I took off the my blue sweatshirt. Yeah, I could back up a little bit and say, okay, I was in the bushes. We wanted to get back to that. This is Forsythia bushes, and I I ran. My race actually started when my mother let me out of the car and I started running and I ran all over Hopkinton. Then I went out behind some buildings. I thought you had to warm up. I just come 3000 miles and you know, three and a half days on the bus. I thought I better warm up a little. And so I was, I was running about 40 minutes out behind some buildings. 
And then finally, I circled around back to the beginning of the race. And I said, you know, where, where am I going to, uh, how am I going to do this? And so I found some bushes and, and I waited there. And then uh, the, the race started and I waited till about half the pack left because I didn't want to get in the way of the front runners. And I jumped into the middle of the pack. And at first, the guys didn't realize I was a woman, but after very quickly, I, within minutes, I would say, um, the guys behind me were saying, is that a girl? Is that a girl? And they're studying my anatomy from the rear. And so I smiled and turned around because I wanted to keep it upbeat. I wanted to end the stupid war between the sexes and show that men and women can share all of life. I wasn't against the men. I was... I was trying to, you know, be with the men, and so they, uh, so they, they said, and I, they could have easily shouldered me out of the race or called the officials or whatever. No, they said, "Wow, I wish my wife would run. I wish my girlfriend would run. And are you going to go the whole way? Yeah, I hope so." And so it was really neat. We were all running together and talking. There was this kind of tall guy from Connecticut. Um, Alton Chamberlain. I have tried and tried and tried to find him since then. Alton Chamberlain. And uh, I hope he didn't get sent to Vietnam uh, because that's where a lot of the young men were going and not coming back. And uh, and anyway, so we were running along talking and, and I was pretty much on a sub three hour race for most of the race. And then thy blisters were breaking through. My blisters were Those really the brand new shoes. Yeah new shoes and I had those little peds on, you know, and the peds were getting all crumpled up and, and it was just awful. It was awful. And of course I hadn't had anything to drink water wise. So uh, I running along and it was hot. And uh, finally my, my feet were hurting so badly that I took my shoes off and I was actually running barefoot for a while. Then the bottoms of my feet started to hurt. So I put my shoes back on again. So my sub three hour marathon just kind of tanked out and uh and at last bit i was just tiptoeing along just each step was just so painful and i got finally uh i turned the corner and i came on to boyle street in those days it it stopped in front of the prudential building and there i turned the corner off off a of herod perfect Ave, and all the people there and clapping and yelling and yeah and then i go down the that final stretch and cross the finish line and the governor of Massachusetts had heard that a woman was running. He came down, shook my hand, and uh, of course the press was all taking photographs and interviewing me and this over. And this is his front page headlines thing. And so it, it was it was an amazing experience, really. And uh, it really did. I think it was kind of a pivotal event that made people think. I mean, I've always fought false beliefs because. False beliefs and lies do so much damage to the human race. I think um, at one time people didn't know that virus and bacteria were the cause of disease, and they thought they were spirits, and, they, and that, that you had to balance the humors in the, in the body by bleeding, by cutting and you bleed. It was the worst thing you could possibly do for a sick person. And, uh, and, 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 and I mean, false beliefs really damage us as a human race. and, and uh, so I, I'm always trying to find out what's true, what's true, what's real, and the truth will set you free. And that's the whole idea, to be, to be free, to, to be and become all that you can be. That's always been what I, I've worked for. And, and so that, that was kind of the, that was kind of the way it was received the first year. Now the second year, to clarify, the second year, I came back again, and I ran again. And uh, this year, everyone knew a woman was coming. Um, they were calling my parents, my parents' house, and th that year I flew back. And I didn't take the bus; I flew back. Everybody knew I was. But coming. that was more relaxing, and yeah, your back hurt less. Parents, most parents were so proud of me that uh, they they both drove me to the start in Hopkinton and the press was there and they were interviewing me at the start and everything. And this time I didn't have to hide in the bush, which is I stood right out front at the starting line with with the uh, with the other runners. And then again, 
the gun goes off, the race starts. And again, I wait because I don't want to get in the way of the, the front runners. I wait a little while until, uh, until the front runners have gone. And then I just start running along perfectly open. It was no problem. Nobody tried to stop me. And so I was running along happily. At that point, I was just trying to prove that a woman was physiologically able to run a marathon. That was, uh, that's how basic it was. And so I was running again and I loved to run and it was great. And the guys were uh, all wonderful and so forth. And then I get home and uh, in the paper, I read there was another woman in the race. And this was Kathy Switzer. And she had gotten an illegitimate number in the race by uh, obscuring her gender on the application form and on the medical records. And and she had, must have had someone else take a physical exam for her because in those days, the men had a brief physical exam before the race, according mm -hmm. to Jock Semple. In his book, Call Me Jock, he, he mentioned this. And so uh, somehow she got this uh, illegitimate or illegal number. And that's, that's what created the problem because Jock Semple saw this number going by and he said, he wrote in his book, uh, subterfuge. <laughs> he said, subterfuge. He was Scottish. Discovery's outraged. Like she tricked me into this, this illegitimate number, which jeopardized the accreditation of this race that he devo devoted his entire life to. This is Jock Semple. And then she had some bodyguards with her. One of the bodyguards knocked this poor old man into the street. And uh, it always, it, 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 it really irritates me that Jock Semple's reputation has been so distorted because he was a good man. I, I met him after the race. He was a good man. He was just, he was just, uh, trying to pr protect all, everybody else. Yeah. He was trying to enforce the rules and try to protect his, race against these people who had broken the rules and it, it's twisted around uh and then uh you know this woman calls herself official it was not official if any, if anything it was totally illegal official, yeah officials were trying to throw her out and so uh but she's made a lot of uh press about it and and it was i think is outrageous and uh i i, I she's done a lot of good for women's running in terms of women's sports she's a great promoter and everything that's what she studied in school promotion and press and so forth and she has promoted women's uh sports but i i do take issue and draw the line at uh this idea when when the truth is not made clear and, it, and it's it, you know i don't want to say a lie but it is definitely not not a true thing to re to misrepresent oneself as the first or the first official when it's simply not true mm -hmm. and then then the press picks it up and they continue this thing and then people get confused and they, they get the two stories confused so but that year i finished an hour ahead of her uh hour ahead of her which of course she never mentions <laughs> but then the next year i came back and i ran it again in 1968 in that year there were five of us women running and all of us without a number, because of course we couldn't get a number because there's no women's division race. And we all ran, and again, I finished first. So the Boston Athletic Association now honors me and, and represents me on their website as a three-time winner of the, of the Boston Marathon in what is now called the Women's Pioneer Division Boston Marathon. And so that, that, is to unravel that story that's been going on for decades and decades and decades, which just isn't, you know, it isn't true um, about this. This other woman was not first, nor was she official, period. And that's the truth. And so then I didn't run. I was going to, I was thinking I was going to come back every year and run it, but it, it did, you know, I ended up getting divorced and remarrying and then in the 70s i was going to law school i was going to night law school i was working at mit in neuroscience during the days which i love neuroscience and i had remarried and i was pregnant and i had a baby and you were like, you were like, trying I, to fit that in i couldn't oh. really fit in training for the marathon at that point that's the 70s 
And then come the 80s, and I was I was out there earning a living like everybody else, and uh, working working a lot long hours, uh, being being a lawyer, and um, so I originally had gone into it kind of as like a civil rights law lawyer or environmental lawyer, trying to protect our beautiful earth from uh, the the disaster that's <laughs> that's occurring, and so, um, so, but I was working really hard, and I, I just I still ran. I ran in the woods, still with the dogs, <laughs> but I, could, I I couldn't. I just didn't have time to run to train for marathons and stuff. Yeah, I did come back later and run one. I think I ran it in two thousand. I ran two thousand one. Two thousand one. I ran the Boston Marathon again to raise money um, for research in neurodegenerative diseases. And then I worked for the lab that I'd raised money for, studying, uh, looking for cure, specifically for ALS, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, Lou Gehrig's disease. But, but a lot of the research I was doing is relevant to Alzheimer's and Parkinson's and all the other uh, neurodegenerative diseases that are, are so horrible. One of my best friends came down with ALS. That's why I was running the race and I was trying to save him. So I went to work for this lab and, and we did a lot of research and, and the lab we have come out with, uh, for some kinds of ALS, a way not only to stop the disease, but in some cases to reverse it. So, you know, it was worth, it was worth all that work. And I was practicing law, and I was, <laughs> I forgot to tell you this, I had gone to the Museum of Fine Arts School in the 60s, because I love art, and I was studying sculpture and everything, and I was still doing my sculpture during all this. And um, so, in fact, speaking of sculpture, I recently did a sculpture of David Ortiz. Oh, Okay. Yeah, you know, I just I was just at the Red Sox Stadium a few days ago uh, with David and uh, he's presenting these sculptures of him. And uh, anyway, but then I I like doing trophies. Like I found like these were trophies that were being given out as prizes. And um, I'm jumping around a little bit, but um, in 1984. Um, was the first ever women's Olympics in in the uh, finally we had a women's division in the Olympics, a women's division marathon, which Joan Benoit won. But it was also the first women's Olympic trials, which was held in Olympia, Washington. And uh, Laurel James, who was organizing the trials, and her son. Um, contacted me and they commissioned me to do a sculpture uh, that would be the prize for the first ever women's division Olympic marathon trials. And so I did this 18-inch sculpture of Olympia, a woman runner, which Joan Benoit won, and she loves the sculpture. Joan is a good friend of mine, and she won the sculpture, and she, she still loves it. And now more recently, I did a life-size sculpture it's now in Hopkinton. Um, the 26.2 Foundation hired me to do this sculpture that co commemorated the pioneer women runners in Boston. And I was going to do a sculpture of Joan. And Joan said, no way. You got to do one of yourself. You got to do one. And I said, I can't do a sculpture of myself. And so, but they said, okay, you don't, either you do one of yourself or you don't do any. And I said, well, that has a very clarifying effect on my thinking. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so I said, okay, I did. It was, it was a funny, funny, you know, look at my hand and, oh, yeah. It's like, what, what, did, what did they say about uh, drawing, drawing your hand? That's like, <laughs> how do you, how do you get better at uh, drawing uh, the human figure? Or yeah. painting someone naked, I guess, too, is a popular way to. Yeah, was, well, there were a lot of when I was in art school. There's a lot of life, life drawing classes. So I knew anatomy. I knew we studied anatomy. That was our final exam was to draw a picture of the skeleton and then of all the muscles on the skeleton and so forth. So I I knew anatomy. But finally, I had a life 
I, I had someone I had never really sculpted anyone from from life before. <laughs> so I'm, oh, here it is. It's me. I'm look, looking in the mirror. <laughs> you know, like, oh God. <laughs> anyway, it was fun. It was fun, and we hope it's going to be dedicated uh, this next April. They're fixing the site right now. It's it's in Hopkinton. It's at the art. Uh, what is it there? Hopkinton Center of the Arts, it's there, standing there on the porch, but it, until they get the site ready for it, it uh, can't, can't really be uh, unveiled or dedicated. So anyway, it's been a great, and the people were so great. I mean, I just really met so many neat people. Yeah, no, that's great. And I, I looked up a statistic just sort of to this line, like when you first saw your first marathon in 1964, Yeah. Uh, Women in Olympics was only 13. They only made up 13%. So yeah. by 1976, it it all it shot up all the way up to 20%. Yeah. Um, and I mean, I, I'm not saying that. I mean, obviously, you helped. I mean, yeah. there, there's no reason you didn't help to push that. Um, yeah. Which one did you say was in uh, Washington? What what year was Olympics then? Oh, that was 1984. That was the okay. first ever Women's Olympic Trials in okay. Olympia, Washington. Yeah. Okay. And so, you know, it was growing. It's sort of like I was cutting through, uh, you know, the jungle. There's no path there. And then the people who came behind me, you know, made a road and then a super highway. And, you know, it's like uh, uh, I, I, I'm the one who likes to run. I like to run and I like to prove things true and false and challenge false beliefs and show that but other people are good at organizing things i mean i don't want to organize a race i want to run in the race <laughs> i can't i'm not a or i'm not an organizer and uh, but there are women who uh, are and, and switzer is one of these women who is a good organizer and she is a good promoter which is great so she should use her talents and and i give her credit for what she actually has done but I take issue with her claiming uh, credit for what other people have done. And yeah. that, that is not right. And uh, I do take issue with that. But, uh, but I, you know, she and I are friends. I mean, I, I like her. I like to be better friends. I just wish she'd stop you know, distorting the truth. But anyway, um, so that, so, yeah, so women have come along a long way and, you know, in, in integrating with men in, in a lot of professions and also integrating men into, I mean, a lot of men are now enjoying relationships with their kids that they never had before, which is yeah. nice. I mean, they're allowed to have feelings now. I mean, men actually cry. Yeah, guess what? You know, men have feelings. Men are very sensitive. I have a son. I mean, I, and I have a father I love and a brother I love and a son I love. and. uh this whole idea of this this war between the sexes and these rigid things is ridiculous. Ridiculous. We love each other. Why? why? <laughs> you know, what's the problem? There isn't any problem, you know? So, but anyway, the men were great. Oh, that's great. And I remember reading that. I was like, that is, that is so inspiring that basically all, all your races, there was not really any backlash. And the other cool thing I heard was, I don't know if it was Westland. Is Westland in Boston? Am I saying that? Westland? Right? Yeah, the, it's like an all-girls college or something like oh, that. Oh, Wesley. They, oh, Wellesley. Wellesley College. Wesley. They heard you were you were running your yeah. first race, and they're like, let's go, let's go. And that's it just seems far-fetched to me just because I, I bring it up again. The phones. Like, hey, yeah. like calling everyone. Like, hey, we got to we gotta go watch. And I just think that's so, like, uh, come like such good camaraderie you know what i mean yeah. like let's go see like the woman running the race yeah they, like, were, they were amazed yeah this, wellesley is about at the halfway point okay. so i'm coming up to wellesley and the man around me i'm hearing screaming in the in the distance in front of me and i go what is that and in the men go it's the tunnel of love it's the best part <laughs> And it's uh, uh. And so there's two lines of women facing each other and they they join hands and you got to run in this tunnel between them. Of course, the men have to kind of get down. And, and so, but the um, Diana Chapman Walsh later became the president of Wellesley College. And she was then a student. And in 19, 
1996, she wrote an article uh, in the paper about what it was like. And she, and she said, we all, we knew that Bobby was coming because it was being broadcast on a local radio station. So this radio station was, a, and they knew I was coming. And when I came into sight, they let out this huge scream. And she said, she said that somehow they all knew that it was never going to be the same after this, that there was no going back. There's no going back now, because you know, this, she she said that this run changed a lot more than just running. It it really changed people's ideas about what women could do. And um, so I I remember that was an amazing part of the race because the women are all spe screaming and laughing and crying. And there was one woman over in the corner and she had a bunch of kids around her and she's going Ave Maria, Ave Maria. You know, it's like. It's like, you know, it's like we all knew that things were never going to be the same again. It was like this was kind of a pivotal point. It was just it was really moving. And, you know, I've always I admired that woman. She had three kids. I thought, wow, three kids. This is amazing. I mean, <laughs> I remember later when I had my kid, I said, I'm having natural childbirth, you know. I'm like, whoa, they give medals for running marathons. <laughs> it's like, oh, my God. This is never, this is, this is incredible. The women have been doing this for, you know, for generations. Forever. And, you know, and along the trail and, uh, and uh, you know, uh, it just, and not, and not being given credit for this amazing thing. I mean, being pregnant and having a baby, I mean, another human being is coming through your body. This is incredible. There's another human being growing inside of you. This is amazing, miraculous thing. And so, uh, you know, it, it just, it was, for me, it was the best thing I ever did. I mean, I just loved it. I love it. And I loved having a baby. I love playing with the baby. I love, you know, watching the baby grow up and, into a man. I mean, <laughs> that's where men and women come from. <laughs> it's like, yeah, guess what? <laughs> so I don't know. It's just part of life. It's a great part of life. And it's great that men are not, you know, really sharing it. And uh, so I love that. No, that's great. So yeah. for my final question, what is something that your parents did that uh, that you've passed on to uh, your children? And what's something on the other half that you kind of introduced that was new or something that you took out that your parents did raising you? Uh, well, my dad was a scientist and he gave me a microscope when I was young and he gave me a telescope when I got a little bigger. And so he encouraged my love of nature and my love of science because he he was fascinated. And so as a kid, we're all we're all like, you know, what are the stars? Where did the stars come from? What, you know, how did why is there day and night? Why is the sky blue? Why why this? Why that? You know? And he answered these questions. He he encouraged me to think about things and to and then I, I of course like all kids and probably all people really it is you you you're curious about things you want to know how things work and so forth so so i mean looking up uh at the night sky in a telescope and then studying astronomy and and seeing my god this thing goes on forever and ever it just it's like why is it here it's like this is like i learned about atoms and molecules and he would teach of course uh in college he taught uh, chemistry and qu quantum dynamics and so forth. What? Well, this is amazing that in the cores of stars and supernovas, atoms are formed. Atoms that then go out into the universe and and form planets. And then, you know, on the, at least at least on our planet, uh, living creatures evolve from these. It's just. It just blew my mind that the the extent of this, and to me, it always seemed I always felt that it was coming from this great, huge, vast love that's beyond our understanding. Because it, I mean, it's not coming from fear. It's not coming from hatred. It's not. It has to be love, the exquisite care that just goes into making one atom. That just making one atom is just so mind blowing, huh? You know, and there's uncountable billions of atoms, and each one is so beautifully, exquisitely made, and they interact with each other, and they form molecules, and 
I mean, to me, it, that the whole thing is is absolutely miraculous. And so I like to sleep out. I like to camp out. You know, I like to fall asleep looking up at the stars and binoculars or something. And uh, and I like to look at all the the images that are coming back from the Webb telescope and so forth. And then I look at the microscopical. My dad and I would go up to the pond near our house and we'd collect pond water and be little amoebas crawling around, you know, and they, you know, it's like, that's amazing. They're little amoebas, they know, and they, they eat, you know, and they reproduce in the way they do. Uh, and, and it's just, to me, it, it's just, uh, we're living in a miracle, you know, and I just, and I, and I feel like if people could sort of align themselves with that sense of the miracle of existence and the love out of which this is coming, that we could have a much better world. I mean, human beings are capable of so much, so much. And the fact that they're still killing each other and hating each other is beyond comprehension to me. It's like, we don't have to be doing this. We really don't have to be doing this. And we, you know, we, we can create societies that where people get along and we don't know we're capable we're capable of doing so much uh and so i'm trying to work on that the best i can i want to do something that can kind of help whatever small thing i can do and there are many millions of people working for this same thing millions of people all over the world people don't want war they just they want you know a nice job they want some security they want education for their kids food to eat clothes a place to live I mean, it's simple. We we don't want to be killing each other, and we don't. We certainly don't want someone walking over and trying to kill us. And so, what do we have to do? I'm going to think. What do we, peace? It's not just absence of war. It's a dynamic structure that we have to build. And so, I'm I'm really interested in this. And uh, I've been. I don't know quite how to work on it. I mean, I, I write a lot of letters, you know, and I think about it, but <laughs> I, I would like to, I'd like to do something to help the world kind of get aligned with that love out of which all this is coming and, and, and be in loving towards each other, but also loving towards our earth and our universe and uh you know just just in, just realize that we're we're living in a miracle and to be grateful for it and to take care of each other and take care of our earth and and somehow um just live more loving lives i guess is what i'm trying to do with partly with my writing oh yeah my son just handed me this <laughs> This is what book I wrote, Wind in the Fire. It's okay. about the two years I uh, trained for the marathon, 1964 to 1966. And it does have some of my philosophy and science and stuff. And um, a lot of people love this. They read it and they just love it. And other people say, I couldn't understand the science. <laughs> so I said, okay, I I'm thinking maybe I'll write a book that leaves out the science. <laughs> I but the science was a big thing to me. But I did yeah. write, I, some of it is in italics. And that's my sort of spiritual, scientific, mm, philosoph philosophical meanderings. And then some of it's just in regular type. And that's the story, the, just the story. So if, if I guess if people don't want to listen to my rantings, they could just read the story. <laughs> so <laughs> anyway. So what, are you, what are you working on right now? I'm working on sculptures. Well, I said I just did one of David Ortiz. And I know this is a podcast, so it won't show up, but I'll show you anyway. So I'm working. I make these bronze. This is solid bronze sculpture. This is a victory, a woman victory sculpture. And um, and then uh, heavy. And this is another. This is the image of women like strong and beautiful and graceful and running it's a different image of it art over the centuries has usually had you know women lying seductively on couches but this this is more of a 
smack mm-hmm. you in the face. Uh, this is more, I can do it type. Of, yeah, uh, more the freedom and and grace of a woman. And I have another one here somewhere. Oh, Marathon Man. This is my favorite one. I want to do this life size somewhere. Maybe at the end of the Boston Marathon or something like that. He's run the marathon. It's like. Uh, yeah, it reminds me of uh, is is the thinker in bronze? Yes, it, the thinker. Okay. Yeah, Rodin. Yeah, it looks just like the same color and be yeah, able to bronze. do this. Is yeah. bronze easy to kind of manipulate? No, I, I'm not. I'm not a, a metal person. You're a metal. Uh, this I'm uh, not. <laughs> oh, I'm. Uh, I run. I do it in clay, which mm-hmm. is very malleable. I do a clay sculpture, and then I make a mold of the clay, mm-hmm. and then I dig the. This is an ancient process. It's going yeah, back. you you do that like sand or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is, it, well, the mold is like sand. I mean, but it's it's a rubber mold, basically. Dig out the clay, and then you pour in liquid wax, melted wax, and the wax hardens. And then you take the mold off, and you have a wax sculpture exactly like this one. It picks up every detail, even the eyelashes and the eyes and the eyebrows and the toenails and so forth. It picks up all the detail and the wax. And then you take the wax sculpture to a foundry, a bronze foundry, and they have huge cauldrons of molten bronze there. And they they take this wax and they dip it in a silica gel solution. And silica gel builds up a crust around the wax, gradually, it'll be maybe half an inch, an inch thick crust around it. And and the silica is will resist the heat of the molten bronze. Mm-hmm. So and then you melt the wax out of the silica gel, and then you have a mold. That's why they call it the lost wax technique. It's an ancient, mm-hmm. an ancient way of doing this. And then you take the silica gel, gel silica. It's now hardened silica mold, and you pour in the molten bronze. And then you chip off the silica, and lo and behold, you have a bronze sculpture exactly to the detail, to, to the tiniest detail, exactly like your clay, your original clay. So I don't actually work the bronze; I work the clay. Gotcha. So you better yeah. hope you get it right. You better get it right the first time, since you gotta get it right. All those steps. It's going <laughs> to show everything. Yeah. And your fingernails, fingernail prints. <laughs> Oh yeah, I didn't even think about that. So yeah, so that's it. So that's what I'm working on now. More sculptures. I'm doing great. I'm actually doing um, trophies. There's been a great interest in um, having me do trophies, and I can reduce this down and do a small trophy or a big trophy. You know, John Benoit's trophy is 18 inches high. This is only about 13, and uh, but they great make great trophies. And a lot of runners buy these. I mean, it's amazing. Like I had a guy buy one of the women runners for his wife for an anniversary. And I had a guy buy this for his son just to say hi. I mean, you know. <laughs> that was great. Yeah. It's, so that's what I'm doing now. Lots of, lots of sculptures. And, of course, still running, of course. It's great. Yeah. And anyway. And but just remember, everybody is special and everybody's interesting, and everybody came here to do something wonderful. And you're doing something wonderful with this podcast. Yeah, I'm trying to. I think. <laughs> thank you again for taking your time, and thank you for your son for helping out. If you he can hear me, yeah, he's, uh, here. he's the best thing I ever did. I tell him. Because <laughs> I am, I'm the same thing with with my parents. I'm the IT guru. I'm the uh, the online uh, liaison between me and me and them and the outside world. So yes. I def- <laughs> definitely appreciate his help. Um, <laughs> yeah, but, here, Lee, figure this one out. <laughs> yeah. Oh, this came up. I don't know how. To yeah, get no, it. <laughs> it, it's like that all the time. But I mean, I yeah. I totally understand, and I've tried to put my that's the thing like as you get older you try to put yourself in in your parents kind of like perspective a lot more and i try to do that as much as possible just because i'm obviously super grateful it's just 
<laughs> you got to put yourself in that mindset uh, in different situations. Uh, but thank you again. I, I love the perspective. It, it was, it, it was amazing. Like it's, it's changed my, every time I talk to a new person, just like you said, everyone is interesting yeah. and hearing someone's perspective. It's just really good being in someone else's shoes in uh, obviously a different time frame. Just like when you were talking about uh, like your, your, your mom being put in that, like kind yeah. of like a box and what she was told to be it. I don't know. It just, it changed my mindset of kind of like what it was like then. So thank yeah. you again. Different. It was different. Yeah. And what I put my poor mom through and my parents, I mean, I, I didn't tell you the whole part about how I trained for the marathon by taking a 3000 mile trip and sleeping out under the stars and running in a different place. I mean, my poor parents. I mean, oh my God. I because it wasn't know. as easy as a cell phone back then. So you had to no, find a pay phone and you wouldn't hear from you probably for oh, weeks God, or a month. Know if I was alive or dead. Oh, God. I, I'm sorry, mom and dad. I'm sorry. I didn't realize. <laughs> but yeah, thanks again. And I, I had a great night. Me too. Me too. Yeah, you're great. I hope you stay in touch. Yeah, I'll see you later. Okay, take care. Bye. Bye. If you like this week's episode of People More Interesting Than Me, please follow me on Apple Podcasts so you won't miss out on more episodes like these.